2: Thanks for being with us, Jill Bennett, sitting in for Simi Sarah. Well, people are still reeling, and understandably so, after the mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas, killing 17 children and two teachers. There have been other mass shootings in the United States as well in the past couple of weeks. Is this what is needed, or is this actually going to lead to any change when it comes to rules and laws around gun ownership in the United States? Well, Reggie Cicchini joins us now, correspondent for Global News National reggie thank you so much for being with us good morning Uh, it seems like it and i know we say this often but it seems like perhaps there is more of an appetite for change when it comes to any kind of regulation what are you seeing and hearing about this
3: I mean, you know, it's it's going to be one thing to, to see in the future if this is going to have led to major change. But the fact that they are kind of signaling on Capitol Hill and throughout Congress that there could be some potential move of the needle does signal that maybe uh, the United States has potentially started to uh, turn a page when it comes to gun violence in this country. And that is because there is a bipartisan group uh, of, of uh, congressional members that are working towards some form of, of updates to gun legislation or new gun legislation on the books and well it's not going to be what everybody wants it's not going to give democrats a big win the fact that there could potentially be some republican buy-in here shows that maybe the tide is turning here but again it's still very early
2: and when you talk about republican buy-in are we seeing voices that perhaps in the past have been adamant opposed to this that are showing a little bit of movement there
3: a little bit here, uh, and, and it goes to uh, leadership within the Republican Party. Mitch McConnell, uh, in the days leading, uh, after the, uh, Buffalo and Uvalde shootings had tasked a, uh, Texas Republican, a leading Texas Republican, uh, to join Democrats to try and work, uh, on some kind of, um, legislation or at least to try and get this conversation rolling. John Cornyn, uh, is the senator from Texas. Uh, and, you know, there are conversations as to whether Republicans are actually interested in partaking in these conversations conversations uh, to move them somewhere or solely so that they can say that they participated and then eventually back away like has happened before and then blame the Democrats for being too partisan. Republicans trying uh, is is not out of the normal if this is able to dig deep if there is able to be some form of compromise when it comes to something like a background check. Or increased red flag laws. If that passes, this will be a big moment for Republicans and even gun uh, control advocacy groups, Jill, say that if Republicans assist with this, they could actually be benefited at the polls because it could turn people towards them.
2: Right. And and the two things you mentioned, and certainly what's being discussed, uh, I mean, I, I suppose for some people in the States, they would view that as radical changes when it comes to gun laws or reforms. Uh, but looking at it, especially from a Canadian lens, it, it's not, uh, I don't think a lot of people here or or even people in the United States uh, to, to look at red flag laws, to look at background checks, those don't seem like extremely radical moves.
3: They don't seem like that. But the problem is, is there's a faction within the Republican Party who will say, say that any kind of attempt to uh, legislate what is a constitutional right in this country is penalizing law-abiding gun-holding citizens, and that's where this fight really revolves around in that the small minority of people oftentimes kind of get pushed aside uh, at the expense of the greater majority of people being the, uh, the you know, common-sense gun-law-abiding citizens in the country. But that said, when it comes to how uh, Republicans and Democrats really feel outside of Washington in the broad electorate around the U.S., It is still the broad majority of Republicans. 77% of them are strongly or somewhat in support of universal background checks. Uh, Somewhere between 80 and 85% of Republicans uh, are in favor of uh, disallowing somebody who suffers from a mental illness from being able to procure a gun. Republicans aren't going to tout these numbers. This is simply what the polling shows. That is why there is so much confusion over why Republicans in Congress are going against what the broad electorate says, and if they opt to move in line with Democrats, that they potentially could find them themselves getting additional votes when it comes to midterm season because these are measures that are broadly backed by the broad American public.
2: Right, it does seem like a disconnect and I mean sad in a way that we're talking about it or the decisions being made based on getting votes, but it is politics, so that is obviously going to play into it. But uh, you would think if that's the case then looking at those polling numbers that's where the benefit would be would be to support these measures.
3: You would think that, but at the end of the day the Republicans also benefit strongly from the gun lobby uh, and something like the NRA, uh, which pumps hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars into Republican campaigns, whether it's for Congress, whether it's for the president, uh, or whether it's just simply for ad buys. Uh, there is a lot of what Democrats call dark money uh, that really infiltrates politics and can stand in the way of gun legislation moving forward. I mean, look, this is a country that has watched Sandy Hook uh, be uh, in the middle of, uh, of a shooting uh, incident, something like Pulse, something like uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, and nothing ever changes. And that's because Democrats say the gun lobby simply gets in the way of being able to move things forward. That's why there is this kind of skeptical look at how uh, Senator Cornyn is involved with these conversations. He gets an A-plus and a 100% rating from the NRA, yet here he is tasked with trying to figure out how to move forward with a potentially watered down version of some form of new gun legislation. These are conversations happening now. That's why we see we need to see what happens by the end of the week and in the weeks to come as to whether or not any kind of legislation is actually going to have been put to paper.
2: And do you think it is the reason that we're seeing those numbers when you say that it's one thing to look at what's being said in Congress, but when you look at the numbers polling of the American public, uh, do you think there is a connection between even looking at FBI numbers showing active shooter incidents in the United States? I mean, the number I saw was it was up something like 52% this year, uh, according to to 2021. I mean, at some point, you've got to think people look at those numbers and think this isn't right.
3: I mean, just since January 1st, according to the nonprofit organization Gun Violence Archive, there have been more than 240 mass shooting events in the United States just since the beginning of the year. Again, you would think that that would resonate with the broad American public, because when you're looking at numbers like that, it becomes harder and harder to find somebody in a city that may not have been impacted by gun violence. Uh, And even though the numbers are there, it becomes a difficult task for uh, Republicans in Congress to try and either break free from the money or to break and go against what the Constitution says about uh, this right to bear an arm, despite the fact that the constitutional language is fairly vague. Uh, at the end of the day, that is where Republicans stand behind, and they will go against the broad electorate, because at the end of the day, again, in Republican states, it's hard for a Republican not to lose, so no matter what their stance is, oftentimes they are going to win, despite the fact that this is a country that has been ravaged to this date just this year by significant and deadly gun violence.
2: And Reggie, just uh, before we let you go, when do you think we might uh, see something on this then, or or, or see, we know the, obviously the talks that are going on and people are commenting on this, Uh, When do you think, though, we might see potentially some action?
3: in the days to come, and it potentially could be swayed by what's happening today and tomorrow. The Senate Judiciary Committee in Washington is going to uh, look at gun violence today through the eyes of domestic terrorism, talking to survivors uh, of the Buffalo Top supermarket shooting where 10 black uh, citizens, residents uh, were gunned down. Tomorrow, an oversight committee is going to hear from uh, survivors and families of Buffalo and Uvalde victims. And Democrats and Republicans say that by the end of this week, there could be some form of legislation out there It won't be what the president wants. It likely won't be what the Democrats or Republicans wants. But they say that something could be out by the end of the week.
2: All right, Reggie, thank you so much for doing this. Appreciate your time.
1: Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi.
2: All right, let's talk about self checkouts and virtual cashiers, uh, something that uh, might be popping up at a restaurant near you. CKNW Mornings with Simi contributor, Raji Sohal joins us now. Good morning to you.
4: Hello, Jill. Yeah, I find this story so bizarre. I mean, in this day and age, we know there's security footage everywhere, right? Like, I just assume you're always on camera. Always, no matter where you are. I could be in the middle of a park or in a forest and I'm like, I bet you there's a camera here. Well, anyway, this uh, group... Four people did self checkout at an IKEA in Burlington, Ontario. They scanned one item and it came out to less than $2 to $1.67. But then they walked out with over $600 worth of goods, like large stuff, too. Security footage shows uh, they walked out with some rugs, some duvet covers, and, and more. It was clearly premeditated. They planned it out. They just paid a little amount and then walked out with this huge amount of stuff. And it's so embarrassing because the security footage on it is really clear. So they're going to be fairly easy to identify. Uh, they, I guess, did not assume that there's security footage everywhere. But um, I was going through the forums after I read this article and seeing that a lot of people were saying, hey, you know what, I would do the same, not to the same extent, but I would take, uh, you know, people were saying they would take a, a couple of dollars worth of something. Um, if they rang it through, they might throw something else in there. And I was like, wow, that's, that's actually brazen stealing. I yeah. guess people don't see it that way.
2: Which is bizarre because it, it, you're right, it is stealing. And in this case, too, the the surveillance footage is crystal clear. So uh, I'm, I'm a bit surprised they've not found the people if they ha- haven't found them yet. But yeah, it does really raise questions about why do people feel it's okay to steal when you're going through a self-checkout? Because you probably wouldn't do that if you're going through a checkout with a real person.
4: No, and I think uh, if you're with a real person, there's... I don't know what it is about the real person, but there's just so much, uh, you feel more accountable for what you're doing. I have to share a funny anecdote from a couple of months ago where I bought a pair of shoes. uh, I went shopping and I bought a pair of shoes. I had a a sweater and one other item in there. Oh yes, a sleeping mask. (laughs) Don't ask. And uh, I rang it, they rang it through for me at the till. I went home and I looked in my bag and the sleeping mask was not there. So I called the store and I said, oh, my sleeping mask isn't here. And they said, okay, well, you know, come in and get a sleeping mask. And, I, and then I tried on my shoes again and I realized I don't like these shoes. So I was going to bring the shoes back as well. So I go to the till, I pull out my receipt and they go, sorry, we forgot your sleeping mask. It fell out uh, when we were trying to put it into the bag. And these shoes were not paid for. Oh. And I thought, what? that's funny. Like I came home with them. They're in my bag. You guys rang them through. They were able to pull up the transaction on their security footage from like, uh, you know, a week prior or whatever in a snap. And they saw that the cashier had forgotten to ring them through. She put them in the bag, but she didn't actually ring them through. And me, Jill, I had my two toddlers with me. And so I didn't, you know, look at the amount for my bill when I paid. Um, And it just so happened that I didn't want these shoes and was returning them, but they were able to pull up everything on the security footage and they could see crystal clear that the cashier had just, it was a new cashier. She had made a bunch of mistakes actually that, uh, that morning with that transaction. But I thought that was so interesting that they could do that and, and would bother to, that they have that all on file. Yeah, interesting. And again, kind of goes to the, the, what people
2: think they can get away with when they've got all of the footage and they know exactly what you've done. All right, interesting stuff. Raji, thank you so much. Thanks, Jill. That is Mornings with Simi contributor Raji Sohal. Your thoughts on the self-checkout versus the real checkout person? Let us know on the buzz line or email me.
1: This is Mornings with Simi.
2: Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah this morning. Well, as you just heard in that newscast, COVID-19 still causing a lot of absences when it comes to healthcare workers. Well, a lot of workers taking time off work because of the illness, but also having a big impact on healthcare workers. So while that is happening, we are also talking today about monkeypox, a rare disease that is linked to smallpox. And we now know there is one confirmed case in BC. That was announced yesterday.
5: So there will be more information about the details involving this. Suffice this to say, the risk to the overall public is low, but we want to make sure that everyone is aware and knows about this issue and is aware of all the steps being taken to support this individual, this individual's close contacts and the community.
2: That was Health Minister Adrian Dix speaking, answering questions about this yesterday. Joining us now is Jason Tetro, a microbiologist, and Jason's specialty is in emerging pathogens. He also hosts the Super Awesome Science Show. Thank you so much for being with us.
5: Hey, it's a pleasure to join you.
2: Uh, I know we talked about this uh, a while ago when we saw cases uh, being confirmed in Canada. I think that number mm-hmm. now up uh, around 77 cases. But we wanted to kind of revisit this because as health officials were saying yesterday and as we heard from the health minister uh, telling people, yes, they've identified a case in BC, but the risk is still very low. So, so what do we know about this disease and why we're seeing these numbers?
5: Yeah. um, Well, first off, I mean, when you look at the actual numbers across the world, uh, as of June 2nd, it was 780. I mean, that's not a lot. If you look at it in comparison to other viruses such as, you know, the flu and, and, and of course, SARS-CoV-2 more recently. The reason that this is so um, strange is because this particular virus is mostly located in a lower part of Central Africa, and then and that basically that's where it's been since 1970, with a few outbreaks here and there, and then you get a few spillovers. So what happens is someone visits from another country, they go to that region, um, they take part in some of the customs, maybe even eating some bush meat or something like that. They get infected, they bring it back, and you get a handful of cases. In this particular case, though, um, what's happened is that. It was first off identified in Nigeria, which is outside of the normal region. And it just so happens that Nigeria has been suffering outbreaks since 2018. And when it's come over to the other countries, it's been getting into the social community, very similar to what we see with something like a mumps. And that is why we're seeing this large amount of spread. And again, that large is only in context of monkeypox, not in terms of other viruses.
2: All right. And and this question keeps coming up as well. For people who were vaccinated against smallpox, do they have protection against if they happen to be a close contact now of somebody with monkeypox?
5: Yeah. So the original smallpox vaccine would give about 85% effectiveness against monkeypox. That was sort of um, when it was tested. That's what we saw in terms of the numbers. We do have waning of immunity, And so you may not have 85% protection against full disease, but what will happen is you will become milder if you do actually get it. Now, of course, you can tell if you had the smallpox vaccine by essentially going onto one side of your arm and looking for that little pock mark, that little dent. I don't have it. I was born too late. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you don't have that, well, there is actually a a vaccine that's out there right now. Um, It's called Ginos. Um, And and it does exactly the same thing, except it has also been shown to be incredibly effective against monkeypox. So we do have an option for a vaccine. Just at the moment, we don't need to do a mass vaccination campaign because, you know, 780 cases worldwide, it's, it's not much. 77 cases in Canada, it's not much. One case in British Columbia. So what you do is you vaccinate what we call a ring vaccination method, where people around the infected case get vaccinated so that it doesn't spread around. And then usually that stamps out or or gets rid of that particular virus in that community.
2: And uh, without going into too much graphic detail, Jason, when we talk about close contacts, because obviously that's a phrase we've been talking (laughs) a lot about with COVID, uh, this is a very different (laughs) disease. How close of a contact do you have to be to be concerned
5: Yeah, so in the initial stages when a person is going through, you know, the the fever and the chills and the aches, that type of thing, then it's really inside of the mouth that's the most um, concerning. And so any kind of bodily fluids that come out um, essentially will transmit this particular virus. Now, that is sort of the easiest way of putting it, and that's one of the reasons why the CDC even says if you happen to be sick, wear a mask, because barrier protection is the best protection you can ever get. If, however, you get to the point where the lesions, the little bumps that you have on your skin... um, scab over, well, those scabs are also infectious, and then it becomes contact. So, you become contact with the scabs, or even if the scabs go into the air, that type of thing, which is why isolation is always so important when you start to have those bumps on your hands and fingers and and toes.
2: But it is a disease, then, even if you are one of the confirmed cases, then, as far as treatment and stuff, uh, that people generally make a full recovery?
5: Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we do have some treatments uh, very similar to other antivirals. And so in that sense, um, if if you are immunocompromised or maybe you're catching it and you're feeling very dehydrated or very weak, these drugs can be provided to help, absolutely. But they're not really all that necessary because this particular infection usually runs its course within about four weeks. So the reality is that it, yeah, life is not great for about a month, but then it goes away. And hopefully, um, if it hasn't been too severe of a case and you've taken care of those lesions, there won't be any scarring like you would have seen with something like a smallpox back in the day.
2: All right. Jason, thank you so much for this. Always great to get your expertise uh, on uh, different uh, viruses and what we're dealing with. Uh, we'll leave it there for this morning, but thank you so much for making the time.
5: It was such a pleasure. Take care.
1: This is Mornings with Simi.
2: Well, there are many questions after word started getting out from three school districts in the province. They're saying that their capital spending projects that had been approved are not going ahead. And one of the reasons given from the BC government from the NDP is that money is needed for things such as flooding and natural disaster response. But where does this leave the schools? Well, joining us now is Adam Olson. He is an MLA with the BC Green Party for Saanich North and the islands. Adam, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for
6: having me this morning.
2: Uh, What was your response uh, when, I know we first heard from the Mission School District, the Vancouver District, and Souk uh, saying uh, that uh, not only have they not had major capital projects approved, but uh, they've also seen ones that were previously approved that appear now not to be going ahead?
6: um, Well, it's very troubling. You know, I think uh, the people in British Columbia have have heard a lot about the the rebuilding of the Royal BC Museum here in the, in the greater Victoria area. And, and uh, the reason why I reference it is because for the last number of weeks, uh, this provincial government, premier John Horgan, uh, minister Melanie Mark, uh, they've all and, and, and I, and I believe actually minister Jennifer Whiteside, the ministry of education have all said repeatedly that the government can uh and i think this is a direct quote walk and chew gum at the same time they can they that the investment that's the billion dollar investment is being made in the museum is not being put ahead of investments in in upgrading and making our schools more seismically safe because we have the capacity to do both and now after session is over we're hearing that uh from from school districts they're they're writing uh, minister whiteside and and um pointing out that uh that one, no new major capital projects are being approved, and two, uh, projects that have been approved in the past um, for upgrading seismic uh, uh, seismic upgrades for schools, I should say, uh, are being deferred. Uh,
2: the Premier said yesterday as well that, well, he was caught off guard. He said, this is news to me. I'd like to see the correspondence. He said it certainly did not come from Treasury Board. We have no freeze in place. So what are your thoughts on his response?
6: Uh, well, I mean, you can see the letter in the same place that I saw the letter. It's posted on. Uh, it's certainly for the Victoria Vancouver School Board, I should say. It's posted on uh, on their website, um, and uh, it's a letter that they sent to his Minister of Education. So, um, you know, I think that uh, I think that uh, the, this government is is quick to stand up and and uh, defend their decision uh, here in the Greater Victoria area, and and to say that they have the capacity and the budget. Uh, to do uh, all of the work that seems to, done, to, to be done. Um, uh, but uh, I think we also have to trust uh, our uh, democratically elected boards of education as well who are really struggling. I've heard uh, from other boards. Um, uh, the, the, Victoria, the Victoria School Board, as an example, is, is struggling to be able to uh, maintain its operating costs and, and uh, maintenance costs are uh, and deficits are, are increasing every year. Uh, in the Victoria School District. So we know that school districts are having a hard time managing the operating. Uh, this pro- provincial government has promised that they'd be there to uh, improve the schools and make sure that they're seismically safe for our for our children. Uh, and, you know, I think that um, as we start to get to the bottom of, of these letters that are being sent, uh, what we're seeing is uh, the government using arguments to uh, defend their decision uh, with this museum project. Um, that uh, frankly, they should be using to uh, defend the uh, upgrades of uh, of schools where our children spend a uh, majority of their day uh, for majority of their
7: year.
2: Uh, also taking a look at the Souk school district, uh, which uh, is uh, in your neck of the woods, I know, kind of, uh, th- th- it seemed like such a disconnect with the premier saying that uh, he said the direct quote was we're putting up schools as quickly as we possibly can in the fastest growing district on Vancouver Island. But then we're also hearing that, yes, it is fastly growing to the point where it might uh, have to go the route of portables.
6: Yeah. Well, I think that they've, uh, if I, Memory serves me correctly. It's been a while since I, I saw their uh, correspondence, but I think it's three uh, elementary schools. That that uh, area, the west shore, in, in the Greater Victoria area is growing uh, rapidly. I also know that there's you know discussions in the Lower Mainland around uh, the Broadway plan and, and the potential for for putting many, many, many more students uh, in that area as well. And so you know, as this provincial government is looking at that and and, and excited about the opportunities, I think they are. For, um, for these uh, rapid developing areas they need to be prepared to stand up and, and, uh, and put in place the resources to support those developments so where we see communities uh, rapidly expanding like the west shore uh, like the potential in some areas of the greater victoria uh, greater vancouver area um, you know i think that uh, none of these developments none of these rapidly growing communities can grow without the provincial government uh, as partners and so you know i think that there there is going to be some concern there there are probably already is concern around the tables that uh, the pr- provincial government will will talk a big game but not be there uh, when it's necessary uh, the other thing that i'll that i'll point to this is that uh, you know in the last in the waning weeks of the legislative session uh, this BCNDP government continued to talk about the largest capital spending um, you know program in the history of the province and and um, and pat themselves on the back for that uh, the reality is, is that there's only so much capacity that the people of British Columbia have, and so you know I think uh, when they when they talk about how they can do all of these things, um, re- rebuild the museum and uh, invest in all of the schools, um, they were leaving uh, us with the impression in the legislature uh, that they that there's near endless capacity to continue to borrow money against our future to, to do all of these projects, and there's certainly uh, um, I think a, a desire and a need for these projects to happen. However, you know, I think that there, there needs to be some um, recognition that, and th- th- I think this was the point that we were making in the legislature with, with respect to uh, the museum redevelopment project was that there is a capacity that British Columbia's uh, boring capacity has. And, uh, and it appears that uh, while the BCNDP wanted us to believe that it was uh, endless in, in the legislative session, only a, a few short days after the legislat- legislature shutters for the week, uh, for the um, summer, I should say, adjourns for the summer. Uh, we're, we're seeing uh, school districts around the province and notifying uh, their constituents, their their uh, students, and their, and their families that, um, that in fact, some of these uh, seismic upgrade projects have, have been deferred.
2: All right, to Adam Olson, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for your time today.
6: Yeah, thanks a lot for inviting me. Have a, have a wonderful day.
1: This is Mornings with Simi.
2: Jill Bennett in for Simi Sarah for the next couple of days. We have been talking a lot about seismic upgrades when it comes specifically to schools. Certainly other buildings in B.C. could use an upgrade as well. But we've been focusing on schools with word that three districts at least have come forward saying, hey, wait a minute, not only are we not getting capital spending that we were anticipating, in some cases, projects already approved, we've now been told they are frozen. So one of the reasons we're talking Talking about this, of course, is because we've been told, that living in this region, the big one is going to hit at some point. Just before we get to, to our next guest, take a listen to Dr. John Clegg, former editor-in-chief of the Canadian Journal of Earth Sciences, talking about just how devastating it could be.
1: They're uh, contemplating the largest earthquake we can get on our coast, which is uh, a magnitude 9. These are very rare earthquakes, but we do know uh, from the geologic record uh, that they do occur. The last one was in January of 1700. So we're talking 316 (laughs) years ago. We know that because the tsunami that was spawned by that earthquake actually caused damage on the other side of the ocean in Japan.
2: All right. So we know there are hundreds of schools in BC that still need seismic upgrades that would likely crumble in the event of a big one. Kevin Falcon is joining us now, leader of the BC Liberal Party. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, this certainly is front and centre once again, after we heard from the school districts saying, wait a minute, what's happening to our funding? Uh, what are your thoughts uh, on what we're hearing about the capital spending for specifically these schools?
8: Well, it's not entirely surprising. You know, when the government at the last minute introduces a project that's over $1 billion, because a lot of people forget, it's not just the $789 million that will be required to build a new museum, they are already underway on what they call a collections building to move all the existing artifacts and archives out of the existing museum over to a new building. And that new building is already almost 30% over budget a year behind schedule and is now forecast to cost $225 million. So, you know, you add the 225 million and counting building just to store things Uh, And then the existing building of 789, which nobody believes that price, it's going to be well over a billion. And what happens is that crowds out other projects. So, for example, in the Mission District, they've been waiting for their Mission Senior Secondary School since it was promised by the NDP in 2020. And they've now received a letter saying it has been postponed indefinitely. And that happens because, uh, and I've been a finance minister, what happens is if you jam in. Over a billion dollars in new capital spending that was unanticipated at the last minute, you've got to find other projects to defer or cancel. And that's what's happening, it appears.
2: Why is it so difficult, do you think, then? Like you say, you've been been a finance minister, you've been a member of of government for many, many years. Why is it so difficult to get schools in this province seismically upgraded? And, And I ask you, looking at a story back, this is a story from 2016 in the Globe and Mail. I mean, it's just a flip of what we're talking about today. The headline being, the BC government has dragged its feet on seismic upgrades for the province's schools for political reasons, says the opposition New Democrats. It seems like it just goes back and forth.
8: Yeah, look, I, I, first of all, it does take time and we have to understand that. Um, you've got to do the assessments and then you've got to prepare the business case and then you've got to get the approvals and then get the construction contractors in there doing the work. So it's not something that happens overnight for sure, but we've made a lot of progress, um, like a lot of progress. Hundreds of schools that have now been successfully seismically upgraded uh, and it does take time for sure. But I think the challenge that people struggle with here is that um, one of the ways we make decisions on which schools to seismically upgrade is based on their rating. And the rating is, you know, the higher the rating, the the more um, uh, it needs to get, you know, immediately upgraded because it's more risky. And the irony is that the Royal BC Museum, of which they argue needs to be seismically upgraded, and that's apparently the main reason they're doing this, it has an overall good rating. Um, it's actually quite a, you know, for those that are really... Dorky about this stuff. It's got a 0.35 overall rating, whereas many of the schools average 0.50, which means the higher rating means they are higher seismic risk. And so it just seems, again, the priority's all wrong. If if government uh, wants to focus on getting their priorities right, then they ought to be investing in healthcare and education, and not be going ahead with the museum that nobody asks for, and nobody wants
2: but even looking back i get what you're saying of course these projects take time but even looking back at the previous liberal governments of, of which you were a part all of these seismic upgrades were supposed to be done by 2020 it was a program that started back in 2004 and here we are today and there are still so many that don't have the work done
8: yeah it's true and it 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 just it takes time honestly i'm i'm not it's like building schools too it's the same thing some of these seismic upgrades are literally almost like rebuilding a school and even the, i used to be frustrated as a finance minister when we would allocate a huge amount of capital to building schools but it's it's not allocating the capital it's actually getting them under construction and built that takes the time because you've got you know limited number of contractors that are sort of specialized in this kind of work and you're pushing out a lot of capital projects and and you've got to stage them in a way that you can ensure you've got the building you know uh folks there to be able to get it done so it's not an excuse it's a reality But nevertheless, I think what we have here, though, is a situation where you've got the promises that have been made to uh, very specific promises to build certain schools. And those schools, like in Mission District, the school board has actually gone out and spent almost $200,000 undertaking the business case, doing all the work that they need to do, uh, ready and assuming that the project's going ahead, only to be told it's been cancelled indefinitely. And that hurts because they've already spent a bunch of sunk costs that they're not going to be reimbursed by the province.
2: Uh, right. And they were, so they were expecting in that case, so what was it? $87 million. Uh, that, that was already approved, uh, not something that they were just hoping for.
8: That's right. Exactly. And so I think that's, that's where it really hurts. And so when they, when they asked the question, like, my goodness, um, why has this been canceled? And same with other districts, like Vancouver is, was hoping that, uh, you know, they had size approved seismic projects at David Thompson secondary, Falls Creek Elementary, Killarney secondary, et cetera. Those have all been deferred too, And so it's, it's, Just frustrating, I think, for some of the school district when they had approved projects, not not, you know, you're in the pipeline, but actual approvals and then to have those yanked and and then they see another project that nobody even contemplated uh, a month ago. Uh, suddenly getting priority. That's, I think, what frustrates people. Uh,
2: The Premier maintains that the museum is needed, that it's only 1% annually of the capital budget, saying that it's a modest amount to to preserve these artifacts. Is it fair, do you think, to play one off the other when talking about the museum and seismic upgrades for schools? Well, look, it's so frustrating,
8: Jill, because I actually, I'm a huge supporter of the Royal BC Museum. I think most British Columbians are, and I would have supported the... uh, the idea that was put forward by the museum board uh, called Treasuries for a Generation, where they suggested only a few years ago a $150 million upgrade. Uh, And that was a sensible approach to, you know, upgrading and modernizing the facility, making the exhibition halls bigger, larger, sunnier, beautiful, um, you know, doing the seismic upgrading, et cetera. But suddenly the the government out of the blue just lurched away from that idea into this crazy idea of spending what will be well over a billion dollars and and the the tragedy Jill is I I can tell you because I've been involved in billions of dollars of construction both in the private and public sector and this one has you know the the alarm bells and red flags are all over the place uh, just to give you an idea of how crazy this is what I got out of the premier when I was questioning him during premier's estimates is that they're going ahead and building that building that I told you about, the collections building that's already a year behind schedule and over budget, but that's not going to be ready for five years, yet they're closing down the museum on September the 6th, so I said to the Premier, well, what's going to happen to all the archives and artifacts that you were building this other building for a quarter billion dollars to protect? And he said, well, we'll temporarily store it, and I said, well, how much is that going to cost? Well, that's going to cost eleven point two five million. So they're going to literally close it down September six when it doesn't need to be closed down. It could, it's perfectly serviceable to keep going for years. Frankly, they haven't even got drawings on the new building, and then they're going to pay eleven and a quarter million to move all those goods to a temporary building while they build a new collections building in Colwood that's already over budget. Like the whole thing just makes no sense whatsoever.
2: All right, uh, Kevin Falcon, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for your time.
8: Thanks for having me, Jill. All the best.
2: Thanks for being with us this morning. Well, we are taking a look at uh, what progressive change might look like in one specific area on the North Shore, talking about West Vancouver and North Vancouver, the makeup there with millennials, just 10.8% of the population in West Van, much higher in North Van. Well, CKNW and Mornings with Simi contributor, Raji Sohal, has been looking into this, uh, specifically talking to one
4: group looking for change. And she joins us now with more on that. Hey, Raji. Hey, Jill. Yeah, the latest census, census data to come out about the demographics between West and North Van are really wonky. <laughs> this means that on the North Shore, you have such a split, like you were saying there, of uh, where millennials are. There's loads in North Van. There are Aren't many in West Van. And the fact of the matter is that West Vancouver has an older population. And so that means that some policies there have just remained stagnant for a long time. And when things come up that are seemingly a little bit progressive, like uh, changes to transit, for example, or changes, to create affordable housing. It's like council there has been slow to bring in those changes that would make the big impact. And now there's this new nonpartisan advocacy group. They're called Positive Voices, and they are challenging that status quo in West Van. They want to change things, they want to make West Van more inclusive. They want to make it more walkable for people and they want to tackle housing and transportation in a big way. But again, they're non-partisan. So no one in this progressive advocacy group is actually... Planning on running for office, they are just taking their optimism to people and trying to change minds. And I talked to one of their founding directors, just Tinder Sidhu. He lives in West Van with his family. They actually came from the UK a number of years ago, and they uh, walked around West Van. They liked West Van. They thought, hey, this is going to be a great place to live. But they were actually uh, astonished by how much fear they encountered in people about change, about changing anything in West Van. And he wanted to change things, but not through being elected. So he started this group. It's
7: kind of hard to be involved in politics. Um, you have to be objective. You have to be seen as objective. You know, after all, this was a place that we chose to live in. And uh, I was, um, I started actively volunteering on a number of boards here. Uh, and uh, I, Uh, Pretty soon came together with uh, a bunch of other people who were also similarly concerned, particularly about housing. We're relatively fortunate in the fact that we um, live where we work and go to school. Many, many people are not able to do that. But if you look at some of the work done, particularly by city mayors and urban planners over the last 20 years they say that one of the best ways to really address climate change is to build more compact communities where people don't have to travel a lot. And that has lots of additional added benefits like um, uh, promoting active transportation. So, you know, we are lucky. My kids can walk to school or take the bus. Um, We um, can walk pretty much all, all of the places that we need to go to or bike. Now, I know that clearly lots of people can't do that. And part of the reason they can't do that is because housing is so uh, unattainable. Um, So we need a, a diversity of housing in communities here in West Van, right across the mainland, and pretty much everywhere in the world if we're really going to be able to make a dent into climate change.
2: Interesting. So, Raji, like you said, uh, not a group that is going to field candidates or get involved uh, firsthand politically, uh, but uh, still trying to get this message out.
4: Yeah, really interesting. He was telling me some anecdotes about how he thinks that it's not that everyone in West Van has this fear of change so much as a very vocal few have it and that they spread that uh, amongst people that are their neighbors that work with them. Um, and spread misinformation at the same time. So he said he has conversations with people about climate change and about what they can do in West Van to tackle climate change, including with housing and transportation, and that people are sometimes uh, initially really against it. They're the NIMBYs. They don't want to change anything. And then after some conversations that they make headway because these people end up learning something new. So we were also talking about how and why people are resistant to change in west van and it's just the same as it is everywhere people are are terrified of what they don't know but historically jill like you look at the lower mainland you look at metro vancouver i am astonished because i was born and raised in surrey i am astonished by how much change i have seen there in my decades um but west van over time it's actually seen very little change
7: the fact that this has been a community which has seen little change, relatively little change over the years. Um, you know, the, 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 the tower blocks that, um, that uh, are here uh, came up all in a very short space of time in the early 60s. And uh, that actually in itself triggered um, a real Uh, response by local residents that, you know, we're not going to have that kind of thing again. Um, This is a community which is very heavily dependent on property taxes uh, for its finances. Um, But... People. What is what is incredible to me is that people don't seem to recognise that, you know, if you are um, principally paying for everything through property taxes, then you do need to have people. Otherwise, your property taxes are going to be high. Um, there is a little bit of entrenched uh, conservatism with a small C. Um, you know, again, partly because of the demographic, part perhaps slightly because it's a little aloof from the rest of the um, uh, urban area
4: you <laughs> Yeah, Jill, I think that we are going to see change in West Van. We can't have a municipality be so unchanging when everything else around it is changing. And I think that attitudes around especially transportation are starting to change in West Van and people are starting to think about how much traffic there is now, uh, given that the population has increased on the North Shore dramatically. And people are going between here and uh, Vancouver all the time and we can't just all be in single occupant vehicles. So I think I think we're going to start to see some change just because we have to.
2: Yeah, interesting. And again, this group really focused on that. So uh, the affordable housing uh, its going to be a, a battle. It's not going to be an easy one to to change minds, but sounds like they're ready for that.
4: Yeah. And I mean, they're called positive voices. They're clearly optimistic. Uh, even just the work that they're trying to do around dispelling the stereotypes of, of West Van people and of, and of how that they're real stick in the muds about, uh, about change. I think even that in and of itself, they're, they're hoping to make some headway. But at some point, I mean, there's just a tipping point, right? Where, you know, this, you have to change something uh, about transportation in, in that area.
2: All right, Uh, Raji, thank you. Thanks, Jill.
1: This is Mornings with Simi.
2: Jill Bennett in for Simi today. Well, we have been talking a lot about lengthy waits at ER departments at several hospitals including Children's Hospital in Vancouver. We've been talking about almost a million people in BC without a family doctor and what can be done to make those waits shorter to make sure people have access to healthcare in a timely fashion. Well, could cost sharing be part of the solution? Bacchus Barua joins us now. The director of Health Policy Studies at the Fraser Institute. Bacchus. thank you so much for being with us.
9: Good morning, Jill. Thank you so much for having me on the show again.
2: Well, good morning to you. This is a study that looks at other countries in the world that also have universal health care. Where does Canada fall then as far as if we look at countries with similar health care systems and the idea of cost sharing?
9: You know, um, we've been doing a lot of work for a number of years, um, looking at how Canada performs compared to other countries. And we always generally find that despite ranking amongst the top spenders, we lag behind our international peers with universal healthcare on key indicators that include things like the number of doctors per population, the number of beds per population, and certainly amongst wait times. Um this obviously suggests the need for some kind of reform, some kind of change. Um, and one of the things that we find is that we debark significantly from our international peers, particularly the top performers, in at least three different ways. One of them is our general attitude towards the private sector. You know, most other countries embrace them either as a partner or a pressure valve. The second is how they fund hospitals, which is based more on activity, whereas over here we still use a global budgeting approach, which sort of treats patients as a cost. Um, And the final third difference is what um, the topic of our study is today, which is uh, patient cost-sharing. And we found that when we look at these 28 other countries, uh, the vast majority of them, 22 of the 28 other countries, generally expect patients to share at least somewhat and in some way in the cost of treatment directly. And these are including countries like, you know, Australia, France, Germany, the Netherlands, Switzerland, a lot of whom are actually top performers. Canada, meanwhile, is really part of only... A very small minority of six countries that don't expect patients to get directly in the cost of core services, and that's you know including countries like the Czech Republic, Denmark, Hungary, Spain, the UK, um, which have universal healthcare but aren't really um, considered, let's say, you know the paragons of healthcare performance. So there's a clear distinction in our attitude towards cost sharing compared to certainly the top performers and. Certainly, the vast majority of universal healthcare countries around the world.
2: So, what does it actually look like when we say cost sharing? Not suggesting that somebody, if you're going in to get a hip replacement, that you have to write a check and pay for it. But what does what does that look like as far as having patients pick up some of those costs?
9: Well, there are a number of different ways in which cost sharing can be done, and and each of these countries do it in in a in a number of different ways. Um, there, there are three specific instruments that are commonly used. Uh, the first is a deductible, which is less commonly used, actually, where you sort of pay the first, you know, let's say two or three hundred dollars out of pocket. And then once that's done, insurance insurance kicks in and pays everything else. Um, the second, which is a much more common method, is what's called co-insurance payments, where you're required to pay a certain percentage of the care, like, let's say, 10 percent of the cost of treatment. And the final one is um, is uh, copayments, which are, you know, flat fees that you generally pay um, along with seeing them, which are usually very small, you know, somewhere between 20 to 50 dollars. Um, and it's important to mention that in all of these countries, uh, they do have you do understand that, you know, you want to incentivize the more appropriate use of care to reduce excess demand. But you want to make sure that this doesn't impact uh, unduly impact um, a vulnerable population. So all of them have exemptions for vulnerable populations. All of them have often exemptions and, and, and uh, smaller subsidies for uh, older individuals. Uh, they all have, uh, have <clears throat> very generous safety nets, and they generally have what are called um, caps on out-of-pocket spending. So as soon as, you know, let's say you've, you've been recorded to spend 500 or or $1,000 in, in many of these countries, um, you're no longer required to share anymore in the cost of treatment. And, it's really trying to balance those two incentives, which is incentivize appropriate care, reduce uh, and, and thereby reduce um, demand for uh, you know, potentially inappropriate and, and unnecessary care while protecting vulnerable populations.
2: Right, because one of the concerns I would imagine would be if somebody is in a population where, where you're, you don't have the money to pay, you wouldn't want to see people then not getting necessary health care because they can't afford it.
9: Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, these are all countries with universal health care that have committed to the same goal of trying to ensure a timely access to care regardless of ability to pay. And whenever, you know, we talk about cost sharing, it's always within the same breadth that you want to talk about generous safety nets for these populations. Uh, you know, nobody wants to have um, these vulnerable populations have undue financial barriers. But at the same time, we want to incentivize the appropriate piece of care. And that's exactly what all of these other countries do. And, you know, if we look at, you know, even the list of the, of the top 10 top performers that we have, eight out of 10 of them use them. And in a lot of cases, that actually results in, you know, better performance on a number of different things, including wait times. When we look at all the countries that have shorter wait times in Canada that we have uh, data for, I think just about all of them, if not all of them, have some form of cost sharing copayments. And these, these, these numbers are quite staggering when you look at the differences in wait times. You know, in Canada in 2016, so we'll go back to before the pandemic, you know, so that we, we don't complete our numbers there, about 18% of, of Canadians reported waiting longer than, than four months for elective treatment. By contrast, in Australia, that was 8%. In France, it's 2%. In Germany, 0% of patients were waiting that long. But if you look at, you know, the sort of policies in Australia, you know, for specialist care, uh, patients can pay up to 15% for specialist treatment. Uh, in France, it's up to 20% uh, for GPs. Uh, in the Netherlands, there's a 385 euro deductible. In Germany, there, there are co payments for, for hospital inpatient days. And again, all with safety nets and, and, and caps. And I should say that, you know, uh, cost sharing is, is just one piece of the puzzle, um, but it is an important one. But it's unfortunate that we can't even experiment with it because in Canada, we have significant barriers imposed by the CHA. So even if a province wants to try to experiment with cost-sharing with, you know, middle-class or higher-income families, they can't do it because they'll actually be financially penalized by the Canada Health Act, and that really creates a risk-averse environment that keeps us amongst the minority of universal healthcare countries and away from the sorts of policies used by some of the top performers.
2: All right, Bacchus, we'll have to leave it there for today. Appreciate uh, so much uh, you coming on the program this morning. Thank you so much for your time.
9: My pleasure. Thank you for giving time to this important topic.